Introduction The Story of a Medieval Village Welcome to Mullamast, The Story of a Medieval Village. This audiobook tells the tale of the remarkable archaeological discoveries made during works in advance of the M9 motorway in County Kildare, where archaeologists found the remains of a long-forgotten medieval village that lay in the shadow of one of Ireland's ancient royal sites. Excavation revealed important new insights into trade, religion, society and everyday life in medieval Ireland. This audiobook draws on archaeological information and contemporary history to tell the story of life and death in medieval Ireland. Each track focuses on a particular aspect of the story, beginning with track two, that sets the scene of this place of importance. Mullimast, a place of importance. Just outside the village of Balator, one of the great historic sites of Leinster rises from the plains of Kildare. It was here the royal site of Mastu once held sway. Perched high on a ridge with regal views over much of the plain of South Kildare and the Wicklow Mountains. Known as Mullamas today, the name derives from Mullach Mastu, meaning the height of Mastu. Had we been fortunate enough to visit the ridge over a thousand years ago during the early medieval period, we might have borne witness to the making of a monarch. For Mastu represented the power base of the Udunling, kings of Lagan or Leinster, who controlled a territory that roughly equates with the southern half of today's province. Mastu was almost certainly the place where these kings were inaugurated and took dominion over their people in a ceremony that imbued them with the royal authority of their office and bound them to their land. Testament to this is the spectacular pillar stone associated with the site and now housed in the National Museum of Ireland. Thought to have been used as an inauguration stone in these royal ceremonies, its richly carved spiral decoration has been dated to the 6th century. The stone is crossed with a number of deep cuts, said to have been made as the warriors of Leinster sharpened their swords on the stone before heading to war. Today the landscape of Mastu provides us with clues to its important past, written in the cluster of monuments scattered along the ridgeline. Like similar royal sites at Tara, Cruchon and Aonmacha, these monuments, which include a large ring fort, an enclosure, barrows and a standing stone, indicate that Mastu's prestige had ancient and prehistoric origins. The story of Mullamast unfolds in the shadow of this famed royal site, just a few hundred metres down the gentle slope that leads to fields in the easternmost portion of Mullamast townland. During prehistory, it was home to a pond which in the Bronze Age was exploited by industrious locals who heated water there using hot rock technology. Their activity was part of the densely rich prehistoric settlement and funerary landscape that was uncovered by archaeologists during work in advance of the M9, M10 motorway that winds its way through Kildare. But our focus is on a later time, 
a time after the prehistoric pond had long since disappeared, a time after the great royal inaugurations on nearby Masto had ended. Instead, our story begins in the late 12th century, when Richard Fitzgilbert de Clare, better known to us today as Strongbow, had swept into Ireland at the head of the Anglo-Normans, irrevocably altering the course of Irish history. Following his arrival in 1170, Strongbow quickly gained control of Leinster, claiming his right to its lordship through his marriage to Aoife, daughter of the King of Leinster, Dermot McMurrah. The old Irish noble dynasties in Kildare were replaced by Anglo-Normans such as Walter de Riddlesford, who counted Mullamast as one of his new lordly acquisitions. It would pass through a number of hands over the coming generations until the powerful Fitzgeralds, the Earls of Kildare, incorporated Mullamast into their considerable estates in the middle of the 14th century. When the first Anglo-Normans arrived at Mullamast, they would have been struck by its fertile, well-drained soils, ideal for both livestock and crop cultivation. The countryside they surveyed had long since been bent to the plough, with the ancient forests removed millennia before to make way for neat fields. A network of streams, likely tributaries of the nearby river Greece, provided a ready water supply. All in all, Mullamass seemed ripe for settlement. Perhaps one final factor tipped the scales. As colonisers, the Anglo-Normans frequently sought to establish themselves on or beside former centres of Irish power. Glancing up the slope towards the royal site of Mastu, the Anglo-Normans made their decision. The settlement they created at Mullamast endured from the late 12th to at least the late 15th century, and perhaps longer. But the village that once thrived here eventually vanished below the sod, lying forgotten across the centuries until the excavation, the largest ever undertaken on a single medieval settlement in rural Ireland, uncovered its secrets and brought it back to life. The Road to Rediscovery Medieval Mullamast Medieval Mullamast's Road to Rediscovery began in 2002. Before a new road is constructed, a number of steps are taken to try to minimise the impact of the road development on wildlife, archaeology and people living in the vicinity. Maps, aerial photographs and historical records are all consulted in detail long in advance of a digger appearing in a field. Mullamass was identified as being a likely area for archaeology due to its historical importance, but the potential of the site was first revealed in a geophysical survey. This survey used a variety of techniques to essentially see what lay below the surface of the ground. The results of the survey indicated an array of archaeological features grouped along what appeared to be a road or street. The true scale of what Mullamast represented was confirmed in 2004. Aerial photography found that this unassuming pasture land contained a multitude of earthworks covering a staggering 50 acres. In 2005, 
Archaeological test trenching along the M9-M10 motorway corridor conclusively confirmed the presence of an ancient road and settlement. These remains were located some 200 metres from Prospect House, an 18th-century building that is thought to stand on the site of a lost medieval castle. It became clear that these newly discovered remains were part of a deserted medieval village, a manorial settlement associated with the castle. In March 2007, a team of archaeologists arrived to fully excavate the village within the motorway corridor. By the time they departed, nine months later, 10% of this remarkable medieval site had given up its secrets. At the core of Mullamast was its medieval road. Despite the importance of the road to the settlement, the villagers didn't appear to go to much trouble with its upkeep. For most of its use, it remained a simple earthen track, winding its way through the buildings. But they did make sure it was wide, very wide indeed, measuring up to 15 metres in width to the north of the site. They did this for practical reasons, as the main traffic on it was not human, but animal, with most goods being moved by ox or horse-drawn carts, and herds of cattle and horses would have been driven along the road. The citizens decided to keep an even larger undeveloped space at the south of the site. This may have been the location of their village green. If so, it would have been one of the most vibrant parts of Mullamast, home to markets and fairs, where locals traded and exchanged goods, watched entertainment and gossiped with friends and neighbours. On either side of the road were the villagers' properties. Medieval villages were typically laid out in a series of long, narrow plots. The front of the plot, called the toft, contained the buildings. The rear, or croft, was used as a garden or paddock. At Mullamast, only the very front of the properties was within the excavation area, but it was bursting with evidence for medieval life. Centuries of occupation was revealed in a complex pattern of ditches, pits and gullies. It was here that the medieval villagers dug their wells and buried their rubbish, staked out their animal pens and gardens. They dried their grain and constructed barns to store the harvest and built pathways to the nearby stream. Most importantly, this was also where they built their homes. The home was the heartbeat of life in medieval Mullamast. Beneath their roofs, countless family dramas played out and generations of villagers were born, lived and died. But despite their importance, these houses left little archaeological trace. All that remained of them were the occasional packed clay floor or the hearths used for cooking and heating. There were no walls to accurately understand their size and shape. Only intermittent drains and sporadic stone footings betrayed traces of their outline. One reason for this was the endless cycle of demolition and rebuilding that was part and parcel of life in a medieval village. Another was damage caused by ploughing, long after the houses had faded from memory. But the main reason was the way these homes were built. Many of the Mullamast houses were likely constructed using what was known as the ground-set method. 
rather than digging deep foundation trenches or burying structural posts. This technique set timbers above ground on stone pads, leaving almost no archaeological trace. Even though little survives, at least some of the Mullamast houses were probably similar to medieval longhouses found in Britain. Some had footings of stone, but the walls were built largely of sod or clay daub. Beneath a roof of thatch or wooden shingles, the living space was divided into one section for the family and another for livestock. These were the type of dwellings favoured by peasants who worked the land, an activity that was the lifeblood of Mullamast. Know your place. Life and society in medieval Mullamast. New buildings and architectural styles were not the only innovations that the Anglo-Normans brought to Mullamast. They also introduced an entirely new system of society. The Irish kings, crowned atop Mastu, ran their territories based on a system called clientship. Their power had been built on a network of obligations and the control of resources, particularly cattle. When an Irish king died, the reins of power passed to their elected successor, the Tarnishta. That system was transformed by the Anglo-Normans. For these newcomers, land was the currency they valued above all else. On the death of an Anglo-Norman lord, all they had gained in life passed to their eldest-born son, a system known as primogenitor. This system of governance that they brought from across the Irish Sea had long since taken hold all across medieval Europe. It was known as feudalism. The heart of the feudal system was the granting of land in return for military service. At the top of this feudal pyramid was the King of England. Using his royal prerogative, he divided lands among his most important followers. These were powerful lords like William Marshall, who held sway over Leinster in the early days of Mullamast village. In turn, these great lords subdivided their territories among their own liegemen, a process known as subinfeudation. Using this method, the Anglo-Normans quickly stamped their authority over vast swathes of medieval Ireland. The land and property these nobles held was valued using a unit called a knight's fee. For each knight's fee, they were to provide a knight for 40 days' royal service every year, or pay an equivalent sum, known as scutage. The entire lordship of Leinster was valued at a hundred knights. Manors like Mullamast, with its own lord, tenants and manorial court, were the basic property unit of this feudal system. Though no records survive, it was probably valued at up to one knight's fee. For the poorest in society, such differences between the Irish system and feudalism mattered little. Regardless of whether their lord was Irish or Anglo-Norman, they were condemned to a life of servitude. But no matter your status, whether high-born or low, the arrival of the Anglo-Normans at Mullamast brought more than a new system of lordly governance. They were here to colonise. 
Local Irish communities were evicted to make way for new settlers brought from England. Of the handful of Mullamass residents whose names survive, all are English or of English extraction. What then became of the Irish? Many left the area completely or would have been pushed to the margins. A few remained and adopted English surnames and culture, hoping to build a new life for themselves and their families. Others went to work for their new lords as unfree tenants. A semblance of the community they had once known may have survived in nearby Moon, where one of the areas became known as Irish Town. But as the decades turned to centuries, the English character of Mullamast and Kildare slowly changed. New Irish families arrived, and the old English families began to adopt Irish manners, customs and culture, a process known as Gaelicisation. Eventually, by 1550, the majority of County Kildare was once again described as being Irish. A late medieval visitor to the manorial village of Mullamast would have encountered a wide range of people. Many had likely come from England, attracted to the new settlement by promise of fewer obligations to their lord and the hope of modest social advancement. But even among the peasantry, society was stratified. Towards the top were Mullamast's free tenants, who held land direct from the lord in return for rent or military service. Close to them were the farmers, who leased lands in exchange for rent and labour. Next on Mullamas' social scale were the gavelers and courtiers, who held their lands at the will of the Lord and who had still larger rent and labour obligations. But at least all of these groups were free. At the very bottom were the unfree tenants, known as Beta, who were Anglo-Norman Ireland's equivalent of serfs. Permanently bound to the land, they had little prospect of advancement. These unfortunate people earned their keep solely through labour and lived and died at the whim of the Lord who governed almost every aspect of their existence. From farm to fork, medieval agriculture and food... For the villagers of Mullamast, life revolved around agriculture. The crops they tended and livestock they reared put food on their tables. Their harvests and produce were used to pay their dues to their lord and to generate income for rent. Success or failure was measured in the strength of the harvest and the health of the herd. Evidence of what the people of Mullamast grew and ate was discovered during the archaeological excavations. It was preserved in the cereal grains they burnt and the butchered animal bones they threw away. It was in the structures they built, the tools they lost and the broken pots they discarded. It showed that the men and women of Mullamast were expert farmers, practised in making the best of what their land had to offer. Each year in Mullamast was dominated by the harvest cycle. It began with the back-breaking job of preparing the fields. Generations of oxen-led ploughs drew the earth into a distinctive pattern of ridges and furrows. 
Remarkably, these linear patterns are still visible at Mullamas today. Villagers planted these fields with whole barley and oats for summer and wheat for winter, sometimes adding other crops like rye. Once the cereals were harvested, the labourers threshed and winnowed the stalks to separate out the grain. Then they placed it in special drying kilns, two of which were discovered at Mullamast. Dried grain was more resistant to disease and survived better in storage. Finally, after many months of hard labour, their harvest was ready to be put to use. Wheat was the most valuable of the Mullamast crops. The villagers sold the majority of it to help meet obligations to their lord. What remained was used, with the barley and oats, to feed themselves and provide fodder for their animals. Much of it was ground into flour. In 1302, the people of Mullamast were one of five villages using a mill in nearby Moon. But the aristocracy and church controlled these mills, so most of the flour people ate themselves was milled at home. They used tools like the five quern stones and grinding stone that were found during the excavation. This flour that they laboriously produced by hand was baked into bread, and they added grain to their stews and pottages. Most of the barley was converted into a home-brewed ale, which was rich in calories and vitamins. The medieval tables of Mullamas farmers were also filled with vegetables and seasonal berries and nuts. Field peas were widely eaten by the poorest in society, as were hazelnuts that were gathered nearby. While meat and fish were important, the peasantry couldn't afford to eat meat every day. This wasn't the case for the nobles. The Anglo-Norman love of meat had even seen them introduce rabbits to Ireland, keeping them in warrens on their manors. The main meat sources in Mullamast were the sheep, cattle and pigs the residents kept in large numbers. The sheep and cattle grazed on pastures outside the settlement, but the streets of Mullamast were also home to an assortment of farm animals. Pigs wandered around freely, sharing the village with domesticated poultry, geese and ducks. As well as providing meat, these animals were also a source of milk and eggs. From time to time, the Mullamast villagers supplemented their meals by hunting. They caught pine martens and squirrels, and may even have turned occasionally to poaching. Deer, pheasant and grouse were all found at Mullamast, species that were reserved for the nobility. If any of the locals had been caught taking them, they would have faced severe punishment. Typically, the villagers of medieval Mullamast would have eaten two main meals a day. Even though the working day started at daybreak, breakfast was not one of them. Breaking your fast too early was frowned upon for much of the medieval period, though those labouring in the fields often would have brought along some bread and ale to sustain them as they worked. For nobles and peasants alike, the main meal came around midday or in the early afternoon. The early evening was the time for a light meal, often based around soup or bread. The people of Mullamast lived in fear of bad harvests and sickness amongst their livestock. Prolonged wet weather posed the greatest risk to their crops, which, if extreme, could bring on famine. 
Chance also dictated the climatic conditions in which they lived. Inhabitants of the 12th and early 13th centuries enjoyed the medieval warming period that brought higher temperatures and greater crop yields. Those of the 14th century faced the Little Ice Age, a cooler period when productivity fell. No matter what generation they belonged to, the fortunes of the medieval residents of Mullamast rose and fell in tandem with the crops and animals that were the cyclical focus of their lives. Wool spools and horses. Trade and commerce at Mullamast. Though it is easy to think of it as a sleepy medieval hamlet in rural Kildare, manorial villages like Mullamast were part of a major international trade network. During the late 13th century, thousands of sacks of wool and hundreds of thousands of hides left Ireland each year. Grain produced in the fields around the village crossed the sea to feed the king's armies, a process managed by Italian merchant bankers. Wool and animal hides from Mullamast were transported by road and river to the ports of New Ross, Waterford and Dublin to be traded in France and Flanders. Medieval Mullamast was also an early adopter of the trade that Kildare remains most famous for today, horse breeding. Mullamast's representatives at market offered their customers a wide range of products. From their livestock alone, the villagers sold fleeces, hides, meat, horn, bone, and the animals themselves. For the villagers in Mullamast, the sights, sounds and smells of butchering and skinning were part of everyday life. But the excavation revealed no evidence that they carried out related work like tanning or leatherworking. They may have preferred to focus exclusively on producing the raw materials, leaving detailed craft work to artisans based elsewhere. The business of buying and selling their goods probably started at home, focused around the village green. But the locals would also have journeyed on foot and by ox and cart to the regular fairs and markets at nearby Moon and Ardskull. There they would have hoped for a good price for their wares, perhaps keeping an eye out for something special to bring to those at home. There seems little doubt that horses were the jewel in Mullamas' crown. The unusually large number of horse bones from the excavation bore no butchery marks, showing that these animals were not being raised for meat. Added to that, nearly all of them were over six years old, with almost no juveniles or young adults. This tells us that the older animals were being kept for breeding stock, while the younger ones were sold off. The horses being raised at Mullamast were no ordinary animals. They were a breed known as the Irish Hobby, which was particularly small, but also very fast and extremely manoeuvrable. They were highly sought after for military use in the 13th and 14th centuries. Hobbies were the mount of choice for lightly armoured Irish troops known as hobblers, Dressed in a padded jacket and carrying a sword, knife and lance, these were the favoured scouts of the English armies. Hundreds of Irish hobblers served with Edward I and Edward II as they battled William Wallace and Robert de Bruce in Scotland. They even made their way to the continent, with the Earl of Kildare bringing 50 to the Siege of Calais in 1346. 
The demand for hobblers and the hobby horses they rode offered a major financial boon for manorial villages like Mullamast, who sought to cash in on their popularity. The increased revenue that the hobby horses brought chiefly benefited the Lord. However, those not fortunate enough to be born into the nobility lived modest lives and sought to be as self-sufficient as they could. Sewing needle cases and a spindle whirl indicated that this probably extended to making and mending their own clothes. Repair instead of replace was the mantra of the medieval farmer. But some objects had to be traded, and the flow of goods and products at Mullamast was not all one way. Even for the less well-off, there was room for the occasional flourish. A ring brooch adorned with chevrons that once closed a dress at the neck, an ornate buckle that secured a belt enlivened with the pattern of incised lines. But by far the most common imported item at Mullamast was pottery from kilns located within the Anglo-Norman colony, both in Dublin and Kildare. Only one of the potsherds originated in France, and just two in England, reflecting indirect links to international markets. The excavation revealed that Mullamast was at one end of the marketing chain that sent Irish goods into Britain and Europe, and through which international goods flowed back. However, it is most telling in this regard that only a single late medieval coin was found during the entire excavation. A silver penny of Edward I minted in Canterbury between 1279 and 1307. Faith and Fervour Religious Belief at Medieval Mullamast In a reflection of medieval society, the manor at Mullamast was made up of three major elements, the castle, the settlement, and the church. Though the exact location of the church at Mullamast remains a mystery, we know it existed through historical records. It was valued in an ecclesiastical taxation for Ireland taken between 1302 and 1306, and was still there in 1533, when it was described as being in ruins. Although the excavation did not find the church building, it did provide clues about its possible location. The archaeologists recovered a total of 30 human bone fragments during the dig, probably accidentally disturbed from nearby graves by the medieval farmers. Nearly all these fragments came from one place, a ditch located just southwest of the main village. This raises the possibility that the village graveyard, and by extension the village church, lie close by, awaiting discovery, just beyond the limits of the excavated area. The new Anglo-Norman clerics who arrived in the colony brought a religious structure that would have been familiar to the already existing Irish church. More than 50 years before the Normans landed, Irish religious leaders held a synod at Rathbrazel, where they decided to adopt the parish and diocesan system that was in place across much of Europe. These reforms were largely completed by the 1150s. Apart from the similarity in structure, the Anglo-Normans also knew the religious orders that were already established in Ireland. Many of them enjoyed continued success, and some, like the Cistercian Order, flourished across both Irish and Anglo-Norman controlled areas. 
But almost inevitably, the arrival of the colonizers did fracture the Irish church politically. Whether you were a native or newcomer played a major role in your prospects for advancement. Under the new regime, those from Irish backgrounds could hold out little hope of climbing the ladder in the Anglo-Norman church. It wasn't long before these newly arrived ecclesiastics wielded enormous power. This influence was bolstered by the church's land holdings, which provided them with significant income. Indeed, for many peasants in medieval Ireland, their immediate lord was not a secular noble, but a man of the cloth. Many of the religious practices of Mullamas medieval villages remained familiar. Their priest administered them with the sacrament and provided pastoral care. The parish church was a central part of their lives from birth to grave. A belief in a physical purgatory and hell shaped the way in which they led their lives. The villagers were called to mass by their church bell. Those not able to attend would have paused their work in the fields when they heard the Eucharist bell, bowing their heads in prayer. These church bells represented more than just a pleasant sound. Medieval people believed the peeling drove off demons and helped to prevent crop damage and bad weather. This is the unfamiliar side of medieval religion. In many ways it was deeply superstitious and competed and coexisted with belief in magical practices such as witchcraft. The religious faith of Mullamas villages was built on a belief in God and his divine control over their lives. They prayed to saints to intercede with God on their behalf. As a result, the devotion and worship of holy individuals played an important role in society. The same was true of pilgrimage. Many of the locals would have journeyed to local holy wells on saints' feast days or travelled to nearby religious centres to visit with saints' relics. Most often they made specific requests, perhaps seeking a cure from an illness, praying for a safe birth or asking for a good harvest. One of the artefacts excavated at Molomast may have been part of this belief system. It was by far the most unusual object the archaeologists discovered. A Roman coin, possibly of Constantine the Great. It was minted in the 4th century, but was found buried in the foundation trench of one of the village buildings. How had it come to be there, almost a thousand years after it was created? The most likely answer is that the house builders placed it there intentionally, perhaps believing that the already ancient object would offer protection or good fortune to those in the household. It may even be a memento of continental pilgrimage, brought home by a local pilgrim who journeyed to Rome or one of the many other devotional sites in the former Roman world. Pilgrim badges are known to have been placed in house foundations, hung over doors and were even fastened to cattle troughs. Whatever its purpose, it remained where they had placed it for another 700 years. We can only wonder if it was an effective talisman for the household who first put faith in it.
In sickness and in health, medieval medicine, dentistry and disease. In the medieval world, access to the finest medical treatments was usually restricted to the wealthiest in society. Mullamast villagers probably relied mainly on local healers, herbalists and apothecaries for remedies, some of whom were women. Many of the physicians were men and often associated with the church. The majority of hospitals were also run by the religious orders. The barbers who shaved these religious men's hair into the distinctive tonsure also carried out tasks such as bloodletting, minor surgeries and tooth extractions, a role that developed into the barber-surgeon of later centuries. Medieval medicine was focused on the idea of balance. It held that the body was composed of four humours, yellow bile, black bile, phlegm and blood. It was believed that illness came from an imbalance between them, so remedies focused on restoring equilibrium. Both the causes and treatment of sickness and disease was heavily linked to religious beliefs. Just as sin was thought to lead to illness, prayer and piety were often central to their treatment. Medieval people were particularly scared of dying in sin and as a result being unworthy of heaven. Aside from prayer, medical practitioners tried to improve their patients' prospects through diet, physical intervention and by administering medicines, many of which were plant-based. One of the most common ailments the people of medieval Molomast would have suffered was toothache. In an era before modern dental hygiene, the villagers' teeth would have been covered in a form of hardened plaque called calculus. The grain that formed a large part of their diet also wore down their teeth. Treatments were often part herbal, part folklore and part prayer. Remarkably, accounts of some of the dental treatments that were popular in the 13th century have survived. One recommended inserting an engraved iron nail under the affected tooth, then driving the nail into an oak tree carved with the name of the sufferer. All this was to be done while repeating the phrase, By the power of the Father and these consecrated words, as thou enterest into this wood, so let the pain and disease depart from the tooth of the sufferer, even so be it. Amen. Similar remedies may well have been tried at Mullamast, though how successful they were is certainly open to question. Though Mullamast's main graveyard is yet to be discovered, we can learn something of the stresses and strains of their lives through another population from medieval Kildare. Only a few kilometres from Mullamast was the contemporary settlement of Ardri, located near the modern town of Athai. Archaeological excavations undertaken there by Kildare County Council uncovered a medieval cemetery containing the remains of over 1,000 men, women and children. Examinations of the skeletal remains revealed that many of the older members of the population suffered from osteoarthritis, caused by the hard physical labour that dominated their lives. 
A number of others bore signs that they had endured periods of hunger and malnutrition in their youth. Surgery was available to at least some of the Ardri population. One had an amputated leg, while another had successfully undergone a procedure known as trepanation, which involved removing a fragment of the skull to relieve pressure. Signs of diseases such as tuberculosis were also present. The bones of one unfortunate individual at Ardri bore the scars of one of medieval Ireland's great scourges. Leprosy. Leprosy was one of the most dreaded sicknesses of the time. At one point, as many as half the medieval hospitals run by religious orders in Ireland were dedicated to aiding sufferers. Leprosy is a bacterial infection related to tuberculosis. It can destroy bone and severely disfigure the victim's nose and jaw. During the Middle Ages, many saw it as a sign of sexual sin, with sufferers condemned to endure their penance on earth instead of in purgatory. Others thought it might result from breathing in foul vapours, eating rancid food, or that it was even caused by the actions of the stars and planets. Medieval populations also had to periodically face devastating epidemic diseases, such as smallpox and typhus. In the summer of 1348, the international trade network that was at the heart of Mullamas' success now brought disaster in the holds of returning ships. The rats and the fleas they carried swarmed ashore at Irish ports, and plague quickly spread across much of the country. Before the end of the year, the shadow of the Black Death had fallen on the village of Mullamast. The disease was bacterial, and both strains appeared to have struck Ireland. Bubonic, which affected the lymph system, and pneumonic, which ravaged the lungs. Writing in the medieval town of Kilkenny, Friar John Clynne recorded the plague's impact on Anglo-Norman Ireland. That disease entirely stripped villes, cities, castles and towns of inhabitants of men so that scarcely anyone would be alive to live in them. The plague was so contagious that those touching the dead or even the sick were immediately infected and died. Many died from carbuncles and from ulcers and pustules that could be seen on shins and under the armpits. Some died as if in frenzy from pain of the head, others from spitting blood. There was hardly a house in which one had died, but as a rule, man and wife with their children and all the family went the common way of death. Remarkably, John Clinton's harrowing last words still survive. So that notable deeds should not perish with time and be lost from the memory of future generations, I, seeing these many ills, and that the whole world encompassed by evil, waiting among the dead for death to come, have committed to writing what I have truly heard and examined, and so that the writing does not perish with the writer, or the work fail with the workman. I leave parchment for continuing the work, in case anyone should still be alive in the future, 
and any son of Adam can escape this pestilence and continue the work thus begun. Those fortunate enough to survive the first harrowing toll of the plague faced further, though less severe, outbreaks in the decades ahead. Through all, Mullamast managed to survive, perhaps aided by its rural location, which was less affected than the colony's towns and cities. But the horrors the Black Death wrought must have lived long in local memory, casting a long shadow over those who still walked the village streets. Warfare and raiding. Unrest and violence in medieval Mullamast. The villages and dwellings of the Anglo-Norman colonists were often shadowed by the threat of sudden violent raids and incursions from hostile Irish forces. For a village to survive, it needed to keep a wary eye on maintaining defences and supplying young men to serve in the military. As with all Anglo-Norman manors, the most important element of Mullamast was its castle. It was through these fortifications that the colonists underpinned their control of the landscape. Through their castles, the Anglo-Normans exercised military authority, controlled movement, and visually displayed their power. The earliest fortification at Mullamast was probably made of earth and wood, but no reference to a castle survives before 1590. This later castle, probably a stone tower house, is also depicted on maps from the 1650s, but its exact location remains a mystery, as the castle was destroyed in the 18th century when its stone was recycled for the construction of nearby Prospect House. It may survive under that building, or have originally stood near a field known locally as the Old Town. Though no visible remains of Mullamas fortifications survive, the archaeological excavations did produce evidence for military activity. This is no surprise, for Mullamast was part of a feudal society. From time to time, some of the villagers had to put their agricultural tools aside to pick up the weapons of war. They also had to open their homes to visiting soldiers as they passed through on their way to executing the Lord's military will. A discovery in the topsoil produced evidence for what these men wore to war. It was a fragment of chainmail, a type of armour made from small metal rings linked together to form a protective mesh. It may have once been part of a mail shirt called a harbeck, designed to provide protection from blows but still allow its wearer freedom of movement. A number of arrowheads were also found around the village. Archery was a prized skill in the medieval world, and many of Mullamas' men would have been expected to regularly practice it. Some of the excavated arrows were of a type called bodkins. These were a form of armour-piercing arrow with long, slender bodies that had the ability to easily punch through padded jackets or chainmail. Throughout the 13th century, Mullamas villagers enjoyed a largely peaceful existence. But that changed utterly in the 14th century. In 1316, 
the most devastating conflict witnessed in medieval Ireland came to the very doors of Mullamas' farmers. In May of the previous year, Edward, brother of the Scottish king Robert de Bruce, landed in Ulster at the head of an experienced Scottish army. He had come to open a second front in their war with Edward II and to pursue his aim of becoming King of Ireland. By January 1316, he and his men were in Kildare. Thousands of his soldiers passed through Castle Dermot and Athy on the very doorstep of Mullamast. In previous years, many of the horses bred in Mullamast were used in the conflict in Scotland, where Irish hobblers fought for England against the Scots. There was some irony in the fact that those self-same Scots were now among them. It is easy to imagine some of Edward Bruce's battle-hardened men riding through the village streets, spreading panic as they went. The bloody climax of the Scottish incursion into Kildare came close to Ardskull. This nearby settlement was well known to Mullamast's villagers, who regularly visited its fairs and markets. It was there, late in January, that the Scots met the Anglo-Irish army that had been gathered to repel them. Some of the terrified men, and their terrified horses, who stood nervously in the Anglo-Irish ranks waiting for the slaughter to begin, may well have been from Mullamast. A contemporary account described their fate. The Scotsmen pierced their armour with spears, impaled their horses and struck men down. It was a tough battle, and those of Ireland who had been so resisted did not dare to stay there any longer but fled, scattered, every one of them, leaving on the battlefield a great many of their good men dead. The Scots emerged victorious, and the war moved on. It would rage for another two years until Edward Bruce met his own death on the battlefield of Fahard in 1318. Even after the Bruce Wars had passed, the threat of violence remained. The Black Death and a resurgence of Gaelic-Irish power, often called the Gaelic Revival, weakened the colony further still. By the start of the 15th century, Mullamast was firmly in a frontier zone. Though still administered from Dublin, it now lay beyond the official borders of that heartland of Anglo-Irish control known as the Pale. Raids from the Gaelic-Irish of Wicklow and Offaly were becoming more frequent. It may have been in response to them that some of the men of Mullamast were called to arms, as two records of royal service in 1422 and 1430 refer to the Army of Mullamast. Eventually, the great Fitzgerald Earls of Kildare re-established control, and by the 1480s they had regained dominance of the region. It proved but a brief respite. The 16th century brought yet more violence to Kildare and Mullamast. One of the bloodiest incidents was the rebellion against the crown led by Thomas Fitzgerald, 10th Earl of Kildare, better known to history as Silken Thomas. That rebellion ended in bloody suppression and retribution. Other clashes in the 1530s devastated Mullamast. In that decade, the area was described as waste and unoccupied due to war. Mullamast Church was said to have been ruinous as a result of war. 
Remarkably, it would seem that the settlement may actually have survived this trauma, but it was never the same again. It was now entering terminal decline. The days of Mullamas' life as a village were well and truly numbered. The End of a Village Mullamast village began to decline from the late 1400s, and the tumultuous years of the 16th century hastened its doom. Although some form of settlement limped on with the castle into the 17th century, its heyday was long since gone. Eventually, the last tenant departed, and what was once a thriving community gradually disappeared below the sod. The ultimate failure of Mullamast was due to a number of factors. The village suffered economically after a fall in demand for the hobby horse, which became less popular militarily in the late 14th century. Once the golden age of the hobby had passed, the village never enjoyed such financial success again. The warfare and raiding that periodically laid waste to the locality, particularly during the hard years of the 1530s, must surely have contributed. The church of Mullamast was never mentioned again after it was described as ruinous in 1533, suggesting that there were not enough villagers or resources to repair and rebuild the church. The village of Mullamast rose and fell in the shadow of the ancient site of Masto. Throughout the lifetime of the settlement, the past glories of that royal ridgeline had lived on in the memories of the Gaelic Irish of Leinster. Those memories remained strong even as the village fell into decline. Masto's importance was the reason that the great Gaelic Irish Lord of Leash, Rory O'Gomora, Rory O'Gomor, decided to camp there one fateful New Year's Day in 1577. Rory was on his way to negotiate with the English and had been granted safe passage for that purpose. But he was betrayed. He and his entourage were set upon in Mastu's royal enclosure by English forces and slaughtered. Today, a monument stands on the spot to commemorate the O'Moores, O'Lawlers, O'Kellys, O'Dorans, McAvoys, Devoys and Dowlings, who all fell with him. Sometimes memory is built in layers. Rory O'Gomore's fate was in turn the inspiration for another giant of Irish history's visit to the site in 1843. He was Daniel O'Connell, forever known as the Liberator for his role in Catholic emancipation. By then focused on repeal of the Act of Union, on the 1st of October that year, O'Connell ascended a platform in the wrath to address a monster meeting in front of tens of thousands of people. It was here that O'Connell was presented with his famous Milesian cap, which he cherished for the remainder of his life. It is likely none among that enormous 1843 Mullamas crowd had ever heard of the Anglo-Norman village that once thrived near where they stood. One of the latest features discovered during the excavation bore testament to just how much the landscape had changed by then. 
Just to the south of the medieval village, a stone lime kiln dated to the 18th or 19th century was discovered. These kilns roasted limestone to turn it into lime powder or quicklime. This useful substance was spread on the land as fertiliser or used in mortar or it was applied to buildings as whitewash. Because of their function, the lime kilns were often built away from settlements. This kiln may have been built during the 18th century construction of nearby Prospect House by the Houghton family. The building of that fine home, which still survives today, also represented the final chapter in the story of medieval Mullamast. For as Prospect House went up, the last remains of Mullamast Castle came down. It is possible that something of the existence of Mullamast village survived in local folk memory. In the 19th century, one of the fields near where the settlement was eventually discovered was known as the Old Town. The field had long since been pasture, so the name may represent a half-remembered memory of what had once existed there. But, unsurprisingly, even in the realms of local folklore, the village founded by the Anglo-Normans pales in the shadow of Masto. Of the many tales told of the royal site, perhaps the most compelling is one from the 19th century, known as the Enchanted Story. It tells of Gerard Fitzgerald, who was known as the Wizard Earl of Kildare. According to the legend, he still sleeps in a cave under Masto's wrath. The wizard Earl is joined in slumber by many of his followers and their great horses. Once every seven years they awake to ride once more around their former lands in Kildare. The Earl can be easily recognised as he sits atop a great snow-white horse shod with silver. The legend tells that each time they complete their ride, they return to their cave, forever waiting for the time to come to finally free Ireland from her foes. Thank you for listening to Mullamast, the story of a medieval village. This audiobook accompanies the publication Colonising a Royal Landscape, the history and archaeology of a medieval village at Mullamast, County Kildare, by Teresa Bulger. The book will allow you to dig deeper into the remarkable stories of Mullamast, and to learn more about the archaeology and history of this important site. You can find details on the publication at tii.ie. This audiobook was produced by Abarta Heritage on behalf of Transport Infrastructure Ireland. The audiobook was written by Damien Shields and narrated by Gerry O'Brien. It was edited and produced by Neil Jackman, Roisin Burke and Jenny Murphy of Abarta Heritage and recorded in Bluebird Studios Kildare with sound engineer Declan Lonigan. We wish to thank Ronan Swan and Noel Dunn of Transport Infrastructure Ireland for all of their assistance throughout this project. For more audiobooks on Irish archaeology and history, please visit our website at abartaheritage.ie.